Well, thanks, folks, for those of you that shared stuff that we were able to um, to speak with and to speak about. It's great to be able to come as the people of God and say, this is what we bring uh, to our Father who knows us only too well. It kind of fits in well with um, what I'm what I'm thinking about, really, as we go forward. Let me uh, share a screen with you so I can <clears throat> show you some slides. There's a sense in which when we bring people to God in prayer, then what we're doing is we are asking that, I suppose most basically, that they would know the grace of God, that freely poured out love of God, that people would be only so, so aware of that for their own lives. And secondly, we're praying that they would know who Jesus is and um, they would respond to that. In what I prepared to share with you this morning, I guess the one thing I'd want you to, um, to hear and to take away with you is the promise that Jesus knocks and we can open the door and if we do he will come and eat with us and in a sense the question is well what would he talk to you about this morning so in a sense the very thing that we pray for others is the thing that we ask of ourselves this jesus who knocks at the door and waits for our response in order that he might come in and eat with us is the one who would want to speak with us. And I wonder what you think he would say to you. Last week, we um, ended the series on Acts with this as one of the images. This idea that the story of the book of Acts is to be continued. <clears throat> and it, in a sense, it's to be continued. And, you know, we talked about the sense of, of Acts not finishing very neatly because the church has an unfinished story. We still have a mission. We have a mission to be involved with. We have a ministry to be involved with. The Spirit wants to take our lives and use us for his glory. It's a story that is always being continued. And how does that happen? Well, I want to suggest that it's not by the church having a whole sort of roster of new programs or better events, but actually it happens through the everyday acts of hospitality. And that's where I want us to think about, or that's what I want us to think about for the next few weeks together, this sense of the power and the promise of hospitality. Of all the things that's been missed over the, the months, um, I don't know what you'd put high, but I guess for most of us, it would be that sense of being with others. You know, from those who are closest to us to those who perhaps we, we would just want to get to know. But that sense of being able to spend time, quality time in person with people, sharing our lives. And over the next months, the reality is that those opportunities will open up again because as more of us get vaccinated, then we're able to meet together and share space together again in a way that will be safe. But behind this sort of human desire to be 
together, which I think is a God-given, created way of us actually being uh, made in the image of God, then the other truth is that I think we act most like Jesus when we share space with other people, when we eat and drink with other people. It's one of the things that when you notice, when you sort of, you, you, you're made alert to it, then suddenly you notice it everywhere. And that's this, just how often Jesus was eating and drinking. It's hardly anywhere in the Gospels where meals aren't involved, either meals that Jesus is invited to or meals that he creates or just the incidental meals along the way. But it feels like what did Jesus do? Most of all, he spent time eating with people and inviting people to eat with him and being invited to eat alongside them. Why is that important? Well, pretty much as it is today, there's a richness of meaning in the eating together. You know this only too well, that every event of any significance involves eating. And um, we spend a lot of time and effort thinking about, well, actually, how do we create a context where people can eat together? Because in the eating together, we recognize the deep meaning of what it is to be together. We recognize in the eating together that deeply sort of connected fellowship and nowhere more so was that in the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Near East at the time of Jesus. Nowhere sort of had such a high value on eating together. Because when you ate together, you became connected. When you ate together, it was a sign that you belonged together. When you ate together, you identified yourself with the person you ate with. When you ate with someone, you created a bond. When you ate together, strangers became friends. It was deeply significant. It was never really just about the food. It was always about what it meant. It was so important and it still is. It's still inspiring. I came across this, um, this I don't know, community venture, which is in Stroud and it's called the Long Table. And in Stroud, a number of years ago, a Christian began something um, that involved a number of sort of strands and a number of drivers, really. The first one was this Christian wanted to feed people who needed feeding. And so they began what, what many of us have been involved with or are aware of. He began a food club where people can uh, pay a certain amount and then uh, have subsidized shopping that comes from food that otherwise would have been taken to the landfill. They were um, outraged that a third of all food that's produced actually just goes to landfill. And for them, that was like a, an indignation that that should not be so. And so they feed people. But the language of the long table came from this idea that every week 
they up to 80 people would literally eat together they would make food together and then they would eat together and on their website it says we will feast again because they can't do it at the moment but they know it will happen but i love that language of the long table because the long table has that image for me at least of uh, the dining table with the the leaf in the middle that opens up so suddenly the the dining table that might just be big enough for you and your sort of household suddenly gets extended and the idea of emergency chairs you know that sense where you go to every room in the house and you bring all the chairs down to be at this long table last year well not last year but the year before one of the things that we were doing as a church was uh, a number of us were inviting any number of people to come and eat just have a eat a meal together do you remember we'd just go and we'd spend an hour and a half or so just eating together six o'clock half past six it wasn't a group it wasn't a bible study it wasn't a prayer meeting it was just a chance around a long table to get to know people and me and Maggie, we, we, we were part of that and we hosted people and we loved it. We loved the idea that we could get all these tables from all over the, the, the house and extend it. Have 15 people around the table sitting on chairs and stools and emergency chairs. But what we loved was this idea of being together and getting to know people, hearing stories. We will feast again. Hospitality in the history of the church has been always seen as a spiritual obligation and a dynamic expression of what it means to be a vibrant Christian. It's interesting that hospitality is never seen as a gift of the spirit. You know, some people go, oh, well, I'm not very good at that sort of thing. It was never seen as a gift of the spirit. It was always seen as an obligation. It's kind of like you're just open to people. And in parts of 1 Peter, where it says, be hospitable, accept one another it also has a little clause in it that says and do it without grumbling it's almost like that very awareness that actually sometimes this will cost and sometimes you might not want to do it but actually do it anyway when jesus comes he eats and he drinks and he does it with people that other people feel are not worthy of it. Someone said the definition of evangelism or Jesus' evangelism technique is this. Jesus ate good food with bad people. That's not a bad definition, is it? Jesus ate good food with bad people. So our greatest creative ministry tool or evangelistic tool or mission tool is your dining table. It's the place where when you eat together, you build bridges. It's where you can decide together, will we learn to love one another as we are? I don't know if you've ever had that experience of uh, having people around and, and you kind of knew them a little bit beforehand. It might have been people you work with or it might be people you met in church or wherever. And then over a relaxed chance of just I don't know, sharing a meal together. It might be in your own home or it might be that you went out for a meal in a cafe or something. That then you discover, oh gosh, they're, they're stranger than I thought. I don't know if that 
thought ever crosses your mind. But oh, I didn't expect them to be like that. But at that point, there becomes a decision. Well, will you love these people that you now know rather than the ones you thought you knew? The place of decision making and then the place of story sharing, the story that shapes us. The stories that we tell of one another about who we are and what's important to us and why those things matter. Essentially what happens is we create spaces of grace. Grace that's shared with one another and grace that's offered to others. It's where we share grace with other people, our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. But it's also grace that's offered out to people who might not yet know Jesus. And that all sounds great. And it will be great when we can do it. But actually, if we haven't received grace first, then anything we share or anything we offer will always remain surface and shallow at best or at worst hypocritical and that's why we begin this series on thinking about actually what does it mean to be hospitable what does it mean to create space for others what does it mean to share our lives with other people what does it mean to offer our homes our space our time to others we start by saying are you sure you've received grace it's why we begin with the story of jesus knocking on the door well that image comes from a passage in revelation chapter three during this series we'll we'll hop around different passages so we're not going to look at one book all the way through but we'll look at different passages and today the passage we're going to read or that pat is going to read for us this morning is from revelation chapter three so pat uh, i wonder if you're ready to read for us are you there pat Okay, we can't hear you at the moment, and I'm wondering whether you either you're muted and you just need to unmute yourself. Is it all right now? That's fine, thank yeah, you. Yeah, sorry, I did click Not... on it, but it's started. Yeah, again. no problem. You're probably halfway through the passage. Anyway, <laughs> I'll start, start again. again. <laughs> to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write: These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich 
and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, Pat. That's great. Two things about this, uh, this church in Laodicea. The, if you've been around church at all, you, this is a well-known passage for you probably. But this idea that Jesus comes to this church, one of the seven churches in Revelations, and says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, two things about this city that I want to tell you about that will make sense of perhaps what Jesus says to them. First, it's about this image of being neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, Jesus says. Now, in our Christian thinking, being hot is really good. It's like I'm, I'm red hot for God. And that's kind of like good. And being cold, well, that's not good. <laughs> and so when you read this, if you come with that idea, you'll go, well, it's a bit odd, isn't it? That Jesus is saying, I'd rather you be either really hot and on fire for me or really against me. Well, it's not quite like that. One of the things about Laodicea as a city was that it didn't have any natural water supply. And so what it had to do was it piped water in from two other cities. One was Colossae, where the Colossians, uh, the, the, the epistle to the uh, Colossians was written. Colossae, they had cold water and they had big pipes that went from Colossae a few kilometers, it wasn't very far away, and uh, the pipes took the cold water to Laodicea. But because in Turkey, in the summer, um, the, the, it's really, really, really hot, sort of like 35, 40 degrees, by the time the cold water, which left Colossi really cold, by the time that water was piped into Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So it wasn't useful as cold water. But they also had pipes that came in from another city called Hierapolis that had hot springs. And they piped water in so that they would have hot water in Laodicea. But understandably, by the time the hot water got to Laodicea, that had cooled down. So that was not hot anymore. It was lukewarm. And so these two sources of water that fed the city Laodicea became known as a city of lukewarm water. And more to the point, perhaps, the water that came from Hierapolis particularly had a lot of minerals in it and was horrible. If you drank it, they would have used it to bathe in, but if you drank it, it would actually make you sick. So now when you see Jesus speaking to them, he's saying, 
you're, you're not you're not like hot water that's useful for bathing in you're not like cold water that's refreshing on a hot day you're lukewarm you're neither and because of that i'm going to spit you out i'm going to spew you out that's the first thing the second thing that jesus says about laodicea is i want you to come and i want you to buy gold from me now this is not laodicea but this is a sort of place that laodicea would have been thought of at the time laodicea was a city of self-sufficiency and what we might call today bling it was self-sufficient to the extent that in ad 17 that that whole valley including colossi by the way was uh, devastated by an earthquake philadelphia some of those other revelation churches were devastated the cities were devastated by uh, an earthquake or earthquakes in ad 17. and rome the, the the governors of that whole area they offered money to the cities to be rebuilt and all the cities took the money except laodicea because laodicea said we don't need your money we are rich enough we will do it ourselves well in many ways quite a uh, a commendable attitude but it came because they said we are rich we are self-sufficient we are able to look after ourselves and so the church in laodicea became a little bit like the city it was self-reliant it felt like it had everything it needed it felt like it was doing fine thank you it didn't really need anybody and it didn't need god and consequently it wasn't useful it wasn't fruitful it wasn't you know it's like no good as hot water no good as cold water just lukewarm just too much like the city if you were attending laodicea and you were spiritually aware you would you would say i don't think this is the church for us I think this church is coasting. I think this church is drifting. I think it's dead. I think it's superficial. I think, well, put your own word there, but you would probably say, I don't want to be part of this church. I want to leave. And Jesus knocks. Jesus knocks on the door and says, I want you to come to me for gold, not your money. I don't want you to be rich and think you're rich in the same way as everybody else is rich. I want you to come and receive gold from me. I want you to come and get true riches. I want you to come to me and instead of, and again, you wouldn't know this just from reading this text, but if you know about Laodicea, they were well known for luxury black cloth, made them rich. And Jesus says, I want you to come and buy white clothing from me. I want you to be dressed differently. I want you to come and get ointment for your eyes. Laodicea was also known as a place where people could get balm for, for, for eye conditions, particularly. And Jesus says, come and get balm for your eyes, salve for your eyes. Come to me. Don't rely on yourselves. Don't rely on your riches. Be faithful. Be different. Even if it costs you, I'm knocking at the door 
of your church. Jesus cares deeply for them. The church is making him spew. <laughs> but he loves them. And he wants them to come to him. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus, and I just want you to hear this. Jesus comes to this self-sufficient, arrogant church and goes, I love you. And I'm knocking. And if you turn, if anyone hears my voice, I'll come in and I'll eat with them and they will eat with me. If you open this door, I'll embrace you. I want to come. I want to eat. Now, this is the Jesus who's always done that, who's always eaten with people who have failed, who's always eaten people who know they've messed up, who's always eaten with people who others said, don't eat with them. They're useless. Jesus loves doing that. He doesn't say, I'll come if you get your act together first. He says, I'll come in the midst of the mess and I will eat with you. It's that sense of the overwhelming love and grace that before you share it, before you offer it, you've got to receive it. You see, I think it's possible to be a Christian, to, to name yourself as a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, and actually just to be continually disappointed with yourself. It's kind of like you've got this bar of what you should be attaining to, and, and it just feels like you're constantly missing it. And so you can, if you're not careful, always begin your relationship with God as though he's disappointed in you. You end up thinking that God's putting up with you, tolerating you, rather than actually loving you. And at its worst, it makes you feel like you just don't like yourself either. Not very much. And you find it hard to think that other people would love you for who you are. And so it feels like you've got to do things for other people. You've got to give things. You've got to give gifts. You've got to do stuff somehow to make yourself lovable to make yourself acceptable. It's why it's really tempting for some people to become workaholics, because if I can just keep on working and prove myself, then maybe that will show either myself or someone else that I'm acceptable. Or for other people, it's why you find it hard to be in relationships with others, because actually you don't think you're, you don't think you're very good or you're very worthwhile. And so it's, it's easy to think, well, actually, nobody would want to know me. You have that conversation in your head. Well, I'm not going to reach out because I think they'll reject me, because I think they'll, they'll not like me, because they won't want me, because I'm not, I'm not who they think I should be. And you almost talk yourself out of it before you get there. If you understand any of those feelings, you are the people who Jesus knocks on the door of 
and says, can I come in? You see, his embrace doesn't get stronger if we get better. (laughs) If somehow we are, I don't know, if somehow we're able to prove ourselves to be more worthy or more worthwhile or worth more, however you'd want to say it. His embrace doesn't get any stronger. He doesn't back off either if you're worse. He doesn't back off when your heart is cold. He doesn't back off when you've really messed up. He doesn't back off when you've been yelling at the ones you love the most. He doesn't back off when you fall into the same patterns of behavior that you thought you'd overcome. He doesn't back off because you're not what you think you ought to be. He eats with us. He sits with us. And I got that idea of trying to imagine Jesus coming in and sitting at the dining table with us. And wanting to say, Jesus, what would you say? What would you say to us? And what would your tone be? And what would we hear? Imagine it. A hundred or so of us sitting at the long table and Jesus sitting with us. And imagine, the analogy will break down eventually here, but imagine that Jesus sort of takes time with everybody at the table and sits next to you for a few minutes even. What would he say to you? The Jesus who knows you. The Jesus who sees you, what would you hear him say? What would you be worried that he'd say? And what would you be surprised by him saying? And it is that, what would his voice sound like to you? Would it be stern? Would it be that dreadful thing that parents do? I'm so disappointed. Or would it be almost that passive aggressive? Well, you could have been better, but what would the tone be? This Jesus who loves taking time with sinners. This Jesus who knocks and says, will you receive my grace? This Jesus who says, I want to sit and eat with you and you know what eating means. Well, this is how the Gospels continued. You read the Gospels and we will over the next two, three weeks, we'll read of Jesus doing this with individuals and we'll try and hear him do that for us. This is how the gospel is continued because it's offered to people like you and me. And it's offered to people who need to hear him. And it's offered because if we don't receive grace, we've got nothing to offer to anybody else, to one another, nor to anybody else. But if, if we hear him knock and we open the door, he'll come and eat. We're going to hand back to Ian and the folks there and they'll lead us in a song. And then we will eat communion together.
But I wonder whether while the song's being played, it's worth just thinking for a minute. If Jesus knocked at the door of our church, what would he say? I'm not talking about the organization as much as the individual. So I suppose what I'm asking is, what would he say to you? And it might be that some of you are brave enough to jot that down, or it might be that some of you just want to ponder that for a while. But while the band are playing and we're singing, you might want to share what you think Jesus would want to say. You might hear it for yourself. Ian, thanks ever so much. Will you, after you, after we've uh, done that, then if you hand back, I'll read some stuff out if there's stuff, and then we might take communion together. Thanks, Ian and, and the band. That was, that was great and obviously so um, connected with all that we've just been saying. And so the comments that have been coming in, what do you think Jesus would say was the question. And um, lots of them saying very similar things in a sense. And it's around this idea of, well, let me read some to you and then um, then you'll get the idea um let me see what would he say well the first comment said he would say i love you my child <laughs> and out of that spins all the others he would say can i come in and share time with you the one i uh, who i know who means so much to me more than you could ever know what would he say He'd say it's okay christine i know you don't always get it right but i'm always here beside you i have enough grace to share what would he say? I see it all. I know you as a child of my heart and I don't wince or turn away. I love you endlessly, unceasingly. The earth and the sky will pass away before I lose my loving hold of you. Very similar to, um, uh, to, to Romans 8. Nothing will separate you from my love. You can never disappoint me because you never stop being made in my image. He would say my door's always open to you and to all. He would say, you're my precious work in progress. You don't have to be perfect right now. Just keep seeking my face and getting to know me. And the rest is in my hand. He would say, you're enough. He knows we're not perfect. He still accepts us. Can you hear the same themes going on? He would say, um, never doubt my love. You're more precious than you know. He would say, God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for the place in your life where he can enter in. He's looking for the places where he can weave his golden thread through the tapestry of your life and using that same golden thread to weave all our stories into the great tapestry of life and the church. He would say, don't worry about being anyone like anyone else but me. He would say, others have said on Zoom, he would say, 
Be kind to yourself. Give yourself the same grace you offer others in my name. You're human. You weren't born to be perfect. I love you because I love you. Uh, he would say, um, for someone who was and can still be legalistic, the verses like, you've been saved by grace. The verses like, you've been written on the palms of my hand have been really helpful verses. And it's, this is why it's so important. Now, for some of you, you go, ah, oh, this sounds a little too mushy, a little too schmaltzy, a little too, aren't we doing okay? But actually the grace of God is so significant for you to recognize and realize and hold on to, because if you don't, you will be driven. You will be driven. And you will be, oh, I think you'll be tempted to be overly perfectionist about yourself. I think you will be legalistic with others. You see, it's easy, isn't it, to judge other people when you think that you're doing all right. When you think that actually you're not such a bad person. And that other people aren't quite imagining it, sort of meeting the right expectations. And it's easy to judge and it's easy to be hard. But actually, when you know, no, I too am the one who misses things, who isn't as good as he thought he was, and yet is loved unconditionally, then it's easier for me to give grace to others. It's easier for me not to have to leap in and correct. It's easier for me to offer grace. The thing that some of those churches in Revelation had in common, and if you're gonna to come to our Revelation passages, you'll hear this again, is that they thought they were doing just fine. And Jesus came and said, you know, but it's not the end of the story. That's the thing. It's not the tragedy, because actually I'm there to offer you grace. Nowhere so, nowhere more so perhaps than in the, the heart of our faith. Um, ben wrote earlier, you can have forgiveness for the past, a brand new life today and hope for the future. Where was that seen? It was seen on the cross the offer of a body broken for you take it eat it if you do you are woven in and if you do you do so because you realize not as good as i thought it was and you take the cup and you say this cup is the cup of the covenant the agreement between us and the father and of course, if you receive it, then you have something to offer. So take the bread and eat the body of Jesus broken for you. Take it for yourself. And take the cup. And drinking it, no that you are held 
by the firm love of the Father. Grace doesn't say you're doing okay. Grace says, I love you. Despite your weakness. Grace doesn't say, oh, it doesn't matter. Grace says, stop striving. Grace doesn't say, don't keep pressing on. Grace says, it's worth it, but actually it's my power at work within you. Grace says, you can stop judging yourself. Because actually, you live for the joy of the one who called you. The grace offered us in Jesus Christ. The grace that we can offer to others around us in the name of Jesus Christ.